You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. This is Cork Today. Cork Today with Patricia Messenger on C103. Cork's greatest hits. C103. And a very good morning to you. Welcoming you along to Thursday's edition of the programme. Bernie, once again in for John Paul, 1850-333-103. If there is anything you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. And you can also text to 0862-103-103. Particularly this morning, we are looking for your thoughts, please, on the first debate, first leaders debate that went ahead last night on Virgin Media. And it was moderated by a guy who will be a veteran of many election debates, a presenter, Pat Kenny. And if you're, all of the papers are picking up on the story today and of course there was an awful lot last night on Twitter and on other social media platforms and people commentating on who was winning, who wasn't uh, winning. And political commentators are giving the first debate ever slightly to Leo Varadkar with some uh, picking out that probably Leo Varadkar's best moment was when he forensic deconstructed Fianna Fáil's promise to introduce an SSIA style scheme for first time buyers. Now people will remember the SSIA uh, schemes that got a lot of people in the country who could afford it to actually save and then you got this lovely bonus at the end of it and Fianna Fáil are suggesting that this is a way for particularly first time buyers SSIA type scheme they save and then they'll get a lump sum at the end of it. But of course as Leo Varadkar pointed out and as Micheál Martin had said, couples can't afford to save because they're paying so much on cost of living and in particular they're paying so much on rent. So if you're saying that, how can you expect those same people to be able to save in an SSIA style style scheme? So uh, that was a good moment for Leo Radker. He managed to pick that apart. He also, Leo, admitted to lack of empathy and he said, maybe I don't say the right words, but he said I show the fact that I care in the work that I do, which I think was a really good solid answer and I actually got, felt a little bit sorry for him when, when he admitted that you know, he's not great at showing empathy. I, I actually felt a little bit sorry for him. So that was probably the good moments for Leo Varadkar. Best moments for 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 Micheál Martin. Some of the commentators are saying, and this was really at the very beginning of it, when he called out the Taoiseach on his plea for the parties to be more grown up, saying that there have been more personal attacks on Micheál Martin than there has been Fine Gael uh, policies, which I thought was a really nice dig at Fine Gael for the scrapped Benny Hill. Remember the viral ad that we spoke about at the start of the week that they put up for a number of hours and then I think they realised, oh no, this is a bit childish and then they uh, took it out. So I took it down. So Leo Varadkar delivering a very assured performance, it showed a maturity about him. Now he did fall down when it came to defending his and Fine Gael's questionable record on health and his own past drug use was probably the cringiest moment of the entire uh, evening. But definitely a solid performance and as I say political commentators reckoning he just edged it if you were point scoring it like you would at a real debate. And Micheál Martin certainly and I think Micheál Martin himself would agree it wasn't his finest debating performance and he's certainly going to have to up his game for the next time around because he's known as a fine, fine debater. Leo Varadkar, very different proposition to Enda Kenny who he would have faced off with uh, last time. Uh, that said, Leo Varadkar did not land any knockout blows so it was very much even Stevens. How did you feel about it? Did you watch it? Did you enjoy it? Your thoughts and comments welcomed. 1850 333 103. Now as many as one in four 
children in some of the most disadvantaged primary schools in the country are homeless, with principals warning that the real figures could be even higher. So how do schools deal with pupils who are experiencing homelessness? Well, joining me from the INTO is Dervla Nigrat, who is the Director of Education and Research at the INTO. Good morning to you, Dervla. Good morning. And you're welcome to the programme. Would I be right in thinking that when teachers go for teacher training, dealing with the issue of homelessness is not part of the curriculum? Generally, it's something that would not have been on their radar when they were in the colleges of education. Yes, they would have been aware of educational disadvantage and some communities are more of a disadvantage than others in terms of educational opportunities. But the issue of homeless now is a totally new phenomenon in schools and something that teachers are increasingly meeting, particularly in disadvantaged areas. But it's not um, exclusive to cities and towns. It's also throughout the whole country. And what effect does living in emergency accommodation have on young children? Um, well, not living in their own home creates insecurity for children. They are, there are uncertainties in their lives. They are not quite sure where they're going to be from week to week or in some cases from day to day. They may not be sleeping very well. They may not have opportunities to engage in homework, um, something that would be quite a normal practice, even if it's very little. Um, they may not, even if they're not sleeping, they're coming to school tired. They may be a little bit disorientated. They could be travelling a long distance if the parents would like them to continue going to the school where they had been before, but that their homeless accommodation is a good bit away. And all that contributes to how ready they are then to engage in schoolwork and to learn in schools. So teachers have to be very accommodating to children. And even if they're not formally aware that children are homeless, they need to be alert to the fact that some children may be homeless but are not actually saying that in schools. So it's, it's a particular challenge for teachers to have that awareness when children are coming to school now. And when you say have awareness in case that they don't realise a, a, a child is homeless, are there cases because of embarrassment that parents may be slow to even tell the teacher that they're living, say, in a hotel? Very often parents don't want people outside their own immediate family to know they are homeless. At other times they may confide in the school principal or in a class teacher, but they don't want other children maybe in the school to know. And in other cases, it may be well known if there are lots of children that are homeless in one school. It's not as embarrassing then because you're not just an isolated case. But teachers do say to parents that if there's anything that they can do or anything they would like to say, they are open to hearing that and schools can offer that support to parents and would say to parents that it's it's not that homelessness is, accept, is acceptable, but that schools will be very supportive of parents and children who are in a particular situation at a particular time. And schools would certainly like to have more resources to be able to do that, to be able to respond to particular needs, whether that is to assist with school uniforms, to assist with school food, um, if where children may not have access to, to, to food where they are staying or may be hungry in school because they can't prepare their lunches. Schools would like additional funding to be able to cope with that. And the other thing teachers would like is more support in terms of the class size generally. Because if you have lots of children with lots of kind of issues or who are struggling, the smaller the class is, 
the easier it is and the more comfortable it is for children and for them to learn. Absolutely. And you f- you forget really about the practical things which you touched on there. You know, a child coming into school without his his or her full uniform because maybe mammy wasn't able to wash the uniform uh, the day before or at the weekend. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some children, of course, in homelessness don't have access to, say, play facilities and they may have energy that they need to kind of release when they come to school. Um, yard times when children go out to play in the yard. That All that needs to be taken into account because I have a children expect a child to sit quietly in a classroom uh, when they, have, they haven't had that space to just to be a child. That all needs to be factored into how teachers would structure a school day for children. Okay, and Lucy, one of our listeners, says, uh, don't forget, Patricia, there are children living in very cramped conditions. They're technically not classed, classed as homeless, but they are homeless. You can have entire families having to move in with granny and granddad. That's right. That would be a form of homelessness that's not factored into, the, say, the figures on homelessness because they're not, it's not that they don't have somewhere to be, but they do not have their own home. And in that context, they are still technically homeless. And then you are having families in overcrowded com- um, situations, uh, overcrowded homes, and they're the same issues arise. They don't have the space to be a family. They don't have space for their, possibly for, for, for cooking. They don't have the space for washing that you would have when you have your own home. And that is a huge issue. Yeah, and did I read somewhere that the INTO, that you, um, you've taken guidance from uh, Focus Ireland as to, to help out teachers? We have worked with Focus Ireland um, in the in the absence of any formal guidelines, say from the Department of Education, in relation to how schools should support families and children who are homeless. The INTO worked with Focus Ireland. Focus Ireland work with the families themselves in in terms of supporting families that are homeless and in seeking accommodation. Therefore, we worked with them in preparing guidelines for teachers and for schools. That would just increase teachers' awareness of the issues that are not always very obvious and that will may not always be very clear that a family is homelessness. Therefore, awareness of what to expect if a family is homeless, awareness about how to respond to families in a way that is confidential but supportive of the family. And whereas the INGO cannot solve the homelessness problem, Focus Ireland is doing a lot of work in that area. So it worked very well to have the two of us working together where we had experienced teachers working with Focus Ireland to develop the guidelines that we then sent to all schools. Well done. And it's just, you know, it's incredible to think that teachers now in some schools will have to put the the education or the, the emotional needs of their pupils maybe even above their educational needs. Well, they're actually very much interlinked. A child's emotional development is very much integral to how they are achieving in the more academic areas of the curriculum and you can't have one without the other. Okay, well done. Uh, well done. Teachers are, are doing fantastic work. work. Listen, Darvila, we appreciate you taking time out uh, to talk to us. Thank you for that Thank and thanks for joining much. us. Good morning to you. That is uh, Darvila Nirat, who is the Director of Education and Research at the uh, INTO with that ongoing problem of children living in homeless accommodation are, as Lucy pointed out, not even down in the homelessness figure but grannies and granddads throwing open their spare rooms because their adult son and daughter have become homeless and they end up coming back home along with their children and you can end up with seven, eight, nine members of the one family all living in a house that was never designed to have that many 
many in it and that in itself can bring difficulties but if you're living in hotel accommodation and then come the weekend when uniforms need to be cleaned or if whatever but you might get it, get it organised at the weekend but say the uniform gets gets dirty or soiled during the week you've no way in, in a hotel accommodation of cleaning that uniform so suddenly little Johnny or Mary goes into school you might have a spare uniform are they going into school hungry are they going into school tired because they're all living in one room what if there's a baby who's woken up in the middle of the night tea or to be fed it's just it's really is a nightmare and it's as it was one of my as, that's why I felt one of important in one of my opening questions to ask when teachers are doing teacher training is that ever factored in do they is a part of the curriculum giving them training to deal with homelessness it perhaps is going to be something going into the future where we continue to see the number of homeless families. I mean, we're at about 10,000 homeless people living in emergency accommodation, which just under 4,000 of them are children. And that figure is quite stubbornly stuck. It doesn't seem to be moving at all. 1850-333-103. OK, some of your thoughts and comments coming in on... Um, on the debate last night between Leo Varadkar, the first head-to-head, the Virgin Media debate between Leo Varadkar and Micheál Martin. Michael in Castletown Bears says, Patricia, hi, it was sickening to watch Micheál Martin last night when he when he could not have the decency to show respect for the work that Varadkar, Coveney and McEntee did on the Brexit deal. Is this the same man who has aspirations of becoming Taoiseach? How though for Leo Varadkar to acknowledge that Simon Coveney was the best politician ever to come out of Cork. Shame on Micheál Martin. As regards the debate itself, it was the first time that I ever remember Micheál Martin losing a debate as he is one of the country's most formidable debaters. He'd never seemed to be serious, only smiling and laughing as if he felt all he had to do was show up. Sad, really sad. Remember the Fianna Fáil Logan, any, slogan, anyone but Kenny and they made him Taoiseach afterwards. Thank you. That's Michael in Castletown Bear. Not a fan of Micheál Martin for sure. Somebody else says, Patricia, just to remember, Leo and Micheál are the best of friends and they would have gone for a pint uh, afterwards. Well, I suppose, yeah, they can disagree on political issues, but they do at the end of the day work. They all work together in one ex- in one uh, sense. Did they go for a pint afterwards? I don't know. Uh, Christy in Temple Glanton. Patricia, hi. I am not a Sinn Féin supporter, but I do believe that Mary Lou Macdonald should be there, even just on gender balance alone. Sinn Féin should not have been brought into the debate when they were not present to defend themselves these debates are merely a competition to see which one will convince the people as to who is the most convincing liar. They're all, they all lack moral accountability, all pro-abortion. Uh, that's from Christie in Temple Glanton. I did think actually, can I just say on the, on the piece where they brought up Sinn Féin and they were knocking Sinn Féin, I did think that was a bit odd when there wasn't anybody there. I thought that was a bit of a strange one as to why Pat Kenny decided to bring that up and let that section go ahead. I don't really understand the thinking behind it. If she had been there or somebody from Sinn Féin had been there, fine, but uh, no. Hi, so this is Pat. How could anybody watch TV3? They are they're openly discriminating against women. As an Irish man, it was embarrassing to watch. So I can't, I couldn't have an opinion on it. Says Pat, I'm. I think people are wrong. I don't think it's discriminating against women. The fact that Mary Lou Macdonald wasn't invited to attend. I mean, if the leader of the Sinn Féin party was Pierce Doherty, he wouldn't have been invited. Both 
TV3 or Virgin Media as it is now and RTE say that the reason that they are inviting just the leader of Fianna Gael, just the leader of Fianna Fáil because they are saying they are the two biggest parties in this country and that they are the only two parties that are going to lead depending on who gets the most seats and, and everyone accepts they'll go into coalition with someone or they'll have some confidence and supply arrangement in place. But the two men that we looked at last night as leaders of the two biggest parties, one or other of them is going to be Taoiseach. And that's the reason that they said the debate should only be, be between the two of those. Whereas even if you brought in Mary Lou, she's not going to be Taoiseach. And even would she even be part of another government? Because both parties are saying that they won't work with Sinn Féin, which is kind of ruling her out straight away. But I don't think it's anything to do with sexism. I don't think it's to do with because she was female that she wasn't invited along. Chair in East Cork watched the debate last night. Very bad. He also feels Mary Lou should have taken part and questions are the two big parties afraid of her. And Sheila in North Cork watched the debate. She thinks Leo got much more airtime than Hall. Did anybody else think the same? Oh, well, I know they're normally quite pedantic. Well, certainly RT, I don't know about Virgin Media, about somebody in the background who will have a stopwatch. They'll have somebody assigned to each of candidates. This is even when they'll have all seven, you know, and all of the leaders join. And there'll be somebody with a stopwatch. And at some stage, because I always think it interrupts the flow of the debate into the earpiece of whoever is moderating the debate will be told. Remember this happened during the presidential campaign when you had all the candidates in in the debates and then into the earpiece of the moderator it'll be said so and so hasn't has to get an extra 30 seconds to balance it out with everybody else I always think that 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 does interrupt the flow of it so I'm assuming that it would have been something like that would have been done last night but I can't say having watched it even though my train of thought kept going so anyway I start thinking I've got to need to do that tomorrow oh I need to check that out tomorrow <laughs> and then I was like, oh come back I'm trying to watch this debate so I I can't honestly say that I watched it in that meticulous detail maybe Sheila in North Cork did did anybody would anybody else agree with Sheila that Leo appeared to have got more talk time than Micheál Martin and of course yesterday was the final day for the formal deadline for nominations and we're told now a total of 531 candidates will go before the public 39 constituencies and there will be 531 going for 160 seats in the 33rd Dáil in what is most in what has been described as the most diverse field to stand for election ever 162 female candidates will stand for election. That's up from 160 who stood in 2016, but nationally for the first time ever, more than 30% of the candidates standing now are women. In terms of the parties, with candidates' tickets now finalised, Fine Gael is just over the 30% quota. 30.5 of their candidates are female. Fianna Fáil and Labour marginally better. Fianna Fáil of 31% female and Labour of 32% female. The number of women on the ticket for people for profit is at 38 while the Green Party is standing 41% of women and Social Democrats because they're mainly all women they top the class they have 57% of 
uh, females and that was with the close uh, yesterday uh, close of nominations 1850-333-103 Bernie taking your course text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103 Court today on C103 Call Patricia with your comment 1850-333-103 Nora in Clonakilty feels Leo Varadkar run, won the debate last night by a long shot she also felt that Michal Martin looked very tired last night and uh, definitely she would be giving the win to Leo and Mary says Patricia what an appropriate song you played after your introduction when when I was talking about what was going on and the debate and all that and what song did I go into Tracy Chapman's talking about a revolution Mary said maybe a revolution is just what we need in this country and Christine says I wouldn't trust Simon Harris with the promises he's making on Bantry Hospital and by the way we will be discussing Bantry Hospital again this morning on the programme because after 11 I'm going to be speaking with one of the organisers of a public meeting that's going ahead next Monday and we'll be finding out uh, who's been invited along to this public meeting and has anybody said so far that they will be going along uh, to the meeting and there is still a lot of uncertainty in West Cork. I mean reading out of the Echo newspaper today that healthcare staff in Bantry, they're now seeking a meeting with local politicians to, to discuss their concerns over any possible downgrading of Bantry Hospital. I mean healthcare staff at the in Bantry are just not happy with the HSC and what the HSC are saying and of course the HSC have been accused of dancing around the issue of whether or not there are plans to downgrade Bantry General Hospital and it's to downgrade the acute admissions service we know the money's been invested into Bantry Hospital and that is more than welcome. Bring it on. Bring on all the more upgrade, bring, up, bring on all the more investment that you can. But you can invest all you like. But if you get rid of the acute emissions service, which is a 24-7 service, then you can have lots of services throughout the day. But if you don't have the acute emissions, that's where, as doctors told us last week on the programme, that's where lives will be lost. Because if the acute admissions can't be admitted to Bantry General Hospital, if the ambulance has to drive past the door of the hospital and head up into CUH, lives will be lost. But there's a really good piece in the Echo today. And it's a group of GPs who are in training in West Cork and they've raised the concerns of any possible decision to downgrade Bantry General Hospital and they say that it would be felt for generations to come. And it's a group of trainee GPs. They contacted the ECHO to voice their concerns in a letter which they have all uh, signed. And one of the points that they make is some of us are currently working in Cork University Hospital and the Mercy Hospital as well as obviously tra- doing some of their training down in uh, I'm assuming they're, they're doing the training down in Bantry as well. But anyway, when they're at Cork University Hospital and the Mercy Hospital, they're saying they see it firsthand the pressure on the services. They say we are in no doubt that a downgrading of services at Bantry would only exacerbate current conditions and put lives at risk. And it is one of the reasons why uh, when we started talking about this last week that this is not just a a West Cork issue because if patients can't go into Bantry General Hospital 
they are instead forced to go to in the main I'm, I'm assuming CUH but they could end up in the Mercy as well and then that's going to put pressure on people from the city from north and from uh, North Cork and from East Cork who use CUH or use the Mercy you'll be going there suddenly discovering a lot of the trolleys are filled with people from West Cork who could have been dealt with at Bantry but because of any changes that would come down they've been sent to CUH instead so it is something that's go- that affects I think the entire region not just West Cork so we'll find out more about what's happening with that meeting when we talk about that after after 11 o'clock today. We've been talking about pensions a lot this week with regard to rules and changes to the age at which people have to, re- to, to, to the age at which people receive their state pension and it has now become a huge big election issue and all of the parties now are scrambling to promise changes to the pension rules if they get into power. Just to give you an example of what some people are saying, Fianna Fáil has pledged to postpone the rise in the pension age to 67 that's planned for next year and they say they will pay sums equivalent to the old age pension to those over 65 in the meantime pending a review of pension provision and that follows the promise that was also made that's what Fianna Fáil are saying but the Minister for Social Protection Fine Gael's Regina Doherty she said last Tuesday night that Fine Gael would pay a transition payment equivalent to the pension to those retiring at 66 until they reach the new pension age of 67. So you kind of think, why just give them the pension? If you're going to give them the same amount, just putting a different name on it, would you just give them the pension and be done with it? Anyway, neither Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, though, have said how they're going to cost it. I mean, that's going to be the big one. You need to, you, it's all very well to make these promises, but then if you get into power and discover, oops, sorry about that, we didn't realise it was going to cost so much, so we can't do it anymore. Other parties, including People before profit and Sinn Féin, they've promised to go even further. They aren't going to restore the pension age back down to 65. So when you would retire at 65, if people before profit and Sinn Féin were in power, you would receive your full state pension from the age of 65. Now, they've costed it. It would cost €450 million would be the annual cost of paying pensioners from the age of 65. But that's a costing as going on the number of over 65s that we have at the moment, I'm assuming, are the numbers we're going to reach the age of 65. I wonder have they done the calculations for, because we know going forward in, is it 20 odd years, uh, we know how, how many people are going to be over the age of 65. So I wonder if the costing's been done on that, because that's one of the arguments that's been forward as to why we've got to reduce pension ages, because simply there's not going to be enough money going into the PRSI pot uh, to pay for it. Anyway, uh, all parties are reporting anger among older voters about these pension changes as all parties are continuing to make largely uncosted pledges to voters. A number of senior economists have warned of the dangers of auction elections in which the parties seek to outdo one another with expensive and extravagant promises. And I think that is what most annoys the electorate. If we're hearing all of these promises and then people get into power and then they discover, oh, whoops, sorry, can't do that now, didn't realise it was going to cost so much. And we wonder why people get cynical about politics and it's because of things like that it's because of candidates 
going out and promising the sun, moon and stars when they haven't a hope in hell, even if they did get into power, of bringing in what they are promising. We need to stop. We need to absolutely stop. All of the parties need to stop this auction election. It just simply doesn't work. 1850 We're going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk about why all of the different government parties need to rural-proof their policies going forward. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Cork Today on C103. Text or WhatsApp Patricia with your comment. 086 103. With the countdown to the general election 2020 now well underway, one group is calling for a strategy to rural-proof all government budgetary decisions. To explain more, I'm joined by Father Sean Healy of Social Justice Ireland. Good morning to you, Father Sean. Good morning, Patricia. And you're welcome. We've been on air since 10 o'clock and we've obviously been talking about the debate last night with listeners giving their views as to who won and and who didn't uh, win. Most people of the view that Leo just edged it. Did you watch the debate last night? I did, yeah, but I'm not going to make any comments on party politics. I know. (laughs) Just out of interest though, uh, the one one discussion that we've been having this morning, should they have had a live audience? Do you think live audiences add to debates? Not particularly. Uh, I think they can be you know, they can be disruptive in many ways. Uh, you know, they can be packed with one side or another. So I'm not sure that it adds a great deal to it. In fact, I'm not sure even the format works all that well, you know. But uh, it's, it is it is what's there, so there's nothing that can be done about it. But um, I'm more interested in sort of having people take, take some time and look at the actual policies and look at the evidence for or against the particular policies that are being proposed and then taking a serious look at you know, is that going to be what we want uh, or not? And uh, voting accordingly. But what about auction elections in which all the parties seem to promise the sun, moon and stars, expensive and extravagant promises, and then they get into power and they know in their heart and soul they're never going to be able to do that. Is that very unfair? It's, yeah, not only that, it's, it's actually quite misleading. And we're back into the sort of variations on fake news in a way, uh, saying where, you know, there's, there's a huge, we can deliver all this, but in actual fact, we can't. I think the issue there is, I think people are, Irish people, uh, the Irish electorate generally, like they're, they're pretty sophisticated. They, 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 they have a fair amount of information. Uh, it's clear enough that if people are over-bidding, uh, if you like, putting in saying we're going to spend money on this, that and the other and cut taxes this way, that way, the other way. Um, and uh, it's clear to Irish people that the money won't be there to actually meet it. One of the things that we would always do, and we've often discussed it on this programme over the years, is like when it comes to a budget or whatever, um, it's important if you're making a proposal that you actually also show how it can be funded, financed, where is the money going to come from? Are you going to increase taxation? Are you going to reduce expenditure somewhere or whatever? And uh, I think that should apply in the general election context as well. In the next five years, the Department of Finance says that there will be 11 billion euro available um, to, in it for additional expenditure or tax cuts or whatever. Uh, the, the real number is probably higher than that, uh, a bit because the Department of Finance would be fairly notorious for underestimating what's available and that that's not 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 a recent development. I mean, we would have been experiencing that with the Department of Finance 20 years ago, 30 years ago even. So, um, but the reality, I suppose, is people can look at the what's being proposed, both in terms of uh, spending on 
infrastructure and on services and on what's being proposed in terms of uh, tax breaks and so on and take a look at does does it measure up to uh, the, the, the kind of level of income that's going to be available to pay for them and then find a balance if you like. Mm. One of the things that we've been arguing as you mentioned is that each budget should in fact be rural proofed and that's a, a, a concept I think that is being discussed but hasn't been implemented but it would make a big big difference uh, if the government because were to rural proof a budget. Is it fair to say that there are more vulnerable people for example older people poorer people living in rural areas than live in urban centres? It is absolutely true uh, and we're talking here not just of highly remote rural areas but also rural areas with with, uh, with a lot of urban, you know, with large towns or whatever. We're still in a situation where rural areas generally have an older population. They have higher rates of part-time employment. They have lower incomes uh, when you look at the the middle of the of the income distribution in rural areas, it's lower than it is across the country, and it's certainly lower than it is in urban areas. And there's also a higher dependency ratio, and there's across the, the whole country uh, practically higher poverty rates um, in rural areas than there are in, in in terms of the national averages. So, it, in a way, rural Ireland starts off at a serious disadvantage, and. Part of the business of a government is really to, to, to equalise that out and to deal with that that issue. Um, not alone the kinds of things I'm talking about, but there's also things about the fact that people in rural Ireland have to travel much longer distances uh, to get their services. Uh, yeah, the even just to go to the shop or the doctors or the post office. That's right. They're, they're, they're basically going about spending maybe, they're, they're sp- travelling three times as far. As, uh, as 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 the urban dweller, if you like, even going to the supermarket is there, the GP or the pharmacist or whatever. So the average, um, in many ways, it can be up to sort of seven times longer for people in rural dwellings. And this basically, obviously, raises challenges for the delivery of services and so on as well. But there, there's also other issues coming down the line. Uh, two out of every five jobs in rural Ireland are at, are at risk because of automation. And I think that's a serious challenge for towns and for the general rural, because they're so dominated, the rural areas are so dominated by agriculture. It's it's very, and manufacturing, that, that actually is susceptible to automation. It will have serious implications for employment, and we should be working on this now, not waiting until it arrives. And, and we find ourselves with growing unemployment in rural Ireland and people having to, to leave in even larger numbers than they're leaving at the moment. And I think there's also a, an issue about um, the, having a sufficient income to live life with dignity in rural Ireland. It's important that rural Ireland be supported both in terms of the incomes that people have, but also in terms of the services that are delivered, such as health and childcare and so on, but also in terms of the infrastructure, like the social housing and the public transport and the broadband. There's a lot of talk about broadband. And, and, most people and we've are, been talking about that for years. Exactly. And, and we're in a space like that we've now got a contract and it's going to, it's, I, myself, uh, I think we might have discussed it here uh, some time ago, like I, we'd be quite, we wouldn't be impressed let's say, with, the, with the contract that's there because it's going to wind up in private hands and despite the fact that there's three billion plus of, of taxpayers' money going into it. But my other concern in there is that by the time rural broadband reaches uh, the, the 
rural Ireland and the extremes of rural Ireland, the actual technology will have, will have passed us by, and we, like, you know, broadband will be out of date. Yeah, there'll be something yeah. else, and and uh, we'll be uh, we'll find rural Ireland left behind again. But the public transport issue is an issue that doesn't get nearly enough consideration, because there is a there is a lot of money going into urban Ireland. On, on public transport. And if you look at Dublin, there's been a lot of money gone into Lewis and, and, and there's planned for the metro, uh, there's the M50, there's a whole lot of stuff. Now, all of that is necessary and more actually is necessary in Dublin. But the interesting thing is the contrast with rural Ireland is far less in terms of public transport in rural Ireland, and mm. that's not acceptable. There's a very good rural transport scheme to support people uh, who, who, you know, and, and, and a local uh, public transport and um, like that that could be strongly supported and uh, resourced far more than it actually is and I think what we need to take a look at very clearly is that uh, in getting in allocating money in a budget each year we've got to make sure that there's equivalence between rural and urban Ireland. It's not good enough to say we're going to spend billions uh, putting public transport into Dublin and forget about the rest yeah. of the country. Precisely. Okay, so so it's all about rural proofing. Just very finally, we've been dominated this week by uh, discussions on the, the state pension issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, does Social Justice Ireland believe the age should be left at 66? Uh, yes, uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, they, we would basically argue that there's a whole range of things that um, the society needs to needs to address, uh, and they affect older people just as they do people of working age and so on. There are five kind of key areas: um, the issue of d- developing a sort of a vibrant economy, having decent services and infrastructure, having just taxation, having good governance in the country, and letting people participate and make shape in the decisions that affect them. And finally, everything that be done that's to be done should be sustainable. Now, all of these things apply to older people. For example, you need to, like older people have to have integrated services. They should, or they should have. For example, they need they need care around accommodation. They need uh, support in terms of health. They need support in terms of public transport and uh, and so on. The the idea that in some way or other, raising the pension age by a year or two is some kind of silver bullet that's going to solve this issue is ridiculous. The money being saved is relatively small. The Minister for Finance said the other day over five years to be a billion euro. That's 200 million a year. But actually most of that 200 million a year is actually spent uh, paying unemployment benefit and unemployment assistance or job seekers benefit and job seekers assistance to uh, people in the, who are over 65, forced to retire, but not entitled to a pension. Yeah, yeah. And they wind up applying for for, um, uh, for these job seekers allowances and so on. And mo- the, the, the only saving to the government is the little margin between the payment, the, the actual payment for the unemployment assistance and the, the pension. About €45 Euro a week, we reckon. Like, I mean, this is Worth this a is lot peanuts. to know this that, worth a lot to the, to, to the person over 65, yeah. but peanuts to the government. Absolutely, peanuts yeah. to the government. So the issue like, should not be 
focusing on as if there's a silver bullet on this. Uh, I'd be much more uh, convinced that these people were serious about about tackling these kinds of issues if I saw them t- looking at how are we going to make sure, for example, and what we were talking about earlier, that we have a decent public transport system in rural Ireland so that people can actually travel, that we have a decent that we have decent accommodation to make sure everybody, as they age, they have decent housing, uh, and we that to, to also make sure uh, that their their health facilities are good and that they don't they're not miles away from yeah. and having no access uh, to, to to GPs or to to, to the rest of the health service. Um, they should have the same kinds of services as as people in urban Ireland, but they should also have the uh, have the priority of ensuring that those kinds of Okay. services and infrastructure that, that they're actually developed across got the board so that all older people have actually got access to them and not just be thinking that in some way or other if we increase the pension age by a year or two we're going to sort of solve the whole problem. Okay. We're not. Okay, got to wrap it up there because I've got to head to news. Sean, thank you for that. It's always thank a pleasure. You. Thanks thank for joining you. us. Uh, bye bye. Bye bye. For the Sean Healy there from Social Justice Ireland. How is the cost of giving a pension to a 66 year old with the option to stay at work instead? Uh, till you want to retire at say 68 or 70 differ from paying what they do now with all of the paperwork and the assessment costs. Why not pay a slightly reduced pension at 65 with yearly age related increases and other benefits added according to age and mobility allowances as a suggestion in 1850 333103 text us 086 2103103 will not go into government with Sinn Féin asks Sandy, are they in contempt of the constitution? As surely it's the voters who elect the TDs as well. Fianna Fáil were linked to Sinn Féin if you look back at their historical origins. Do Fianna Gael supporters not remember being down to 22 TDs before Enda emerged as party leader and revitalised the party image among the young and the old alike with his Bill Clinton type of image by when he spoke to people showing them that he cared about them yet he was stabbed in the back says Sandy by newbies to elect a TD who admitted drug taking among his credentials and even suggested decriminalising cannabis I'm assuming Sandy that you are not a fan of uh, Leo Varadkar but on your point are they in contempt of the constitution? I, d- I don't know if they are because of course the argument could be made that there's nothing to stop if the tide is going in the right direction there's nothing to say that Sinn Féin wouldn't do really, really well on election day and maybe they, along with smaller parties, would be able to form a government. You know, there's nothing at all to say that that couldn't happen. We have seen in the past on election days when the tide is out for a particular party like you're suggesting what happened once to Fine Gael party gets absolutely decimated and they end up with little or no seats so nobody knows at the end of the day nobody knows until the day after when the ballot boxes are open and the counts are count it. Uh, Liz, oh yeah this is an interesting one from Liz, looking for your thoughts on this. Uh, Hi Patricia, enjoy your programme, thank you very much. Um, Liz is contacting us about election leaflets that are coming in through her letterbox. Now Liz lives in a household where she has you know one of the no junk mail stickers and signs which are getting very very popular. There's so many houses now have the no junk mail sign over their letterbox telling people don't want any of your rubbish about sales that are on in the area or free magazines whatever it is I just don't want it but Liz now is getting confused because she's saying she's getting the election leaflets in particularly the ones she says that have your name and address addresses on them are they not junk mail because she's already 
sick of them and there's many more of them to come Liz well firstly the ones that come with your name and address on them they would have come via on post so the candidates or the political parties would have paid to have those delivered the postman has no other choice but to put them through the letterbox now I don't know when the postman delivers leaflets in other words sometimes you can get a leaflet drop done by on post but you pay for it I don't know. I'd have to, if there's any postman or postwoman listening, if they go to the door, and this is when it's just a leaflet, leaflet drop, if they go to somebody's house and there's a sign saying no junk mail, does the postman or postwoman then not put the leaflet through? If there's a name and address on it, that's deemed a letter to you. They've absolutely no choice at all. And then as to the candidates, when they're going around, because I've I've received both. I've received what Liz has spoken about. I certainly have got ones that the postman has delivered, where it's been, you know, addressed to the householder or has it been addressed to me individually? I don't know. But anyway, there's been ones that have come through on post. But then I've also gone home when there's obviously been canvassers out and I wasn't in when they called and it's come through the letterbox. But that's the individual or someone on behalf of an individual candidate putting the leaflet through the door. Now, I don't have a no junk mail sign on, but I'm just wondering how are candidates, are their representatives, how are they dealing with that? Are they, do they honour a householder's wish when they say no junk mail by not putting the leaflet through the post? Or, that, or is there that whole debate that you can't class election material as junk mail because the idea of an election leaflet is to inform you, to educate us, to help us make up our minds to tell us more about who the candidate in the air, who the candidates in the area are, and you know, help us to decide who we're going to vote to vote on the day. So, are they technically not junk mail? Liz is already sick to the teeth of them, and if you are sick of them, Liz, I, I don't know what you can do about it, but. Just make sure you recycle them. Don't be putting them in for landfill. Certainly put them into your recycling bin. But anyway, anybody else agreeing with Liz on that, particularly people who have a no junk mail sign up outside their door, are you offended by the fact that people are ignoring your no junk mail sign and they're still putting election literature through the letterbox? Or is it only right and proper that the candidates do that, the, that those leaflets are not junk mail. That's what we're asking. So is it our election leaflets, are they junk mail? Do you deem them junk mail? Let us know your thoughts on that. You can ring Bernie at 1850 or you can text me to 0862103103. Uh, apologies once again, our WhatsApp is still... Uh, out of order. There's still the, there's technical issues with it and they're still working on it. So you can, if you want to text us, it can only be by the traditional text 0862 103 103. And somebody else has said, Patricia, how can a candidate run in two constituencies? And, and I know exactly who the person is talking about in this picture's all over the papers uh, today. It's Peter Casey. I'm, I'm assuming it's the businessman, Peter Casey, who you are talking about. Remember Peter Casey? He was the former presidential hopeful did he come second or third in the the presidential election? And of course, he created the huge hoo-ha with his comments about members of the travelling community. And you remember he went down to those houses in Tipperary where the members of the travelling community, who 
I, I must check because I know I checked late last year and the people still hadn't moved into those houses. These gorgeous like horseshoe of houses have been built for these members of the travelling community who had been living across the way in Tipperary for 20 oh, odd years I would say and the council wanted to do up the road so in order to get the travellers to move, move they built them these houses and they're just fine, fine looking houses big houses as well and just as they were about to move in the members of the travelling community said no unless you give us land for our horses remember that and there was a huge hoo-ha about it and it was Peter Casey came out and spoke out quite strongly about it quite strongly against the members of the travelling community and he was accused of racism Uh, and then there was that secret sort of feeling that Peter Casey was speaking out on behalf of so many other people who felt exactly what Peter Casey felt but didn't feel that they were in a position to verbalise it and it reflected in the vote because a lot of people went out and voted for Peter Casey purely on that issue but it was seen very much as anti-traveller. Anyway, that man Peter Casey, who's a millionaire, he's a very, very successful businessman. He hasn't gone away and he still wants to get involved in politics. So he's obviously a Donegal man and he is, he had said in the last number of months that he was seriously considering, if an election was called, he was seriously considering running and he has decided to run. But he's not only decided to run in Donegal, but he's also decided to run in the same constituency as Leo Varadkar. And he handed in his paperwork yesterday as a candidate in Dublin West. And actually, it's kind of a bit embarrassing because he did it at the same time or around the same time that the Taoiseach turned up yesterday morning with his papers. But he is also, his name will also appear on the ballot paper in Donegal. So somebody's asking the question, is that possible? that somebody can actually run in two constituencies. And what would happen if he got elected in both? Well, under election rules, there are no restrictions as to how many constituencies a single candidate can run in, as long as they file their nomination paperwork and they lodge a deposit of 500 euro with the returning officer in each constituency. That's not a problem for a very wealthy businessman like Peter Casey. It only really becomes a problem if the candidate is elected in one or more constituencies. So... There's a section in the Act for that. Under Section 35 of the 1992 Electoral Act, if any person is returned as a member of the Dáil for two or more constituencies, God, you're going to be very popular, they must declare to the clerk of the Dáil which constituency they wish to represent and they have to do that within 30 days of the Dáil's first sitting. So they could get elected to two or more, but they can't then go in and say that they're representing people in all of those constituencies. So they have to select which constituency if they don't, if they decide to get a bit bullheaded and say, no, I'm not going, how can I decide between the lovely people in Donegal and the lovely people in Dublin West? What would happen then for Peter Casey? Uh, they will be deemed successful in the constituency where they received the most votes. Once the decision is made, the deputy then would have been deemed to have been de- de- deemed to have resigned from the other seat. And what would happen? A by-election would have to be called. Now, according to the Daily Mail today, candidates running in multiple constituencies is not uncommon. However, winning in more than one is kind of uncommon. did happen in the local elections last year. Uh, A lady by the name of Sharon Cogan, she ran in Meath and she won seats in both Laytown Bettystown, that was one constituency in Meath, And she also won a council seat in Ashbourne. She obviously has, she's 
I'm assuming she's one of those people that straddles. In the way, you can straddle both constituencies and uh, you're losing when you decide to go in one constituency you actually know you're giving up a portion of your votes because people for example if she'd just gone for the Laytown Bettystown side she would lose the votes that she knows she's going to get in in Ashburn so she decided to run into into, but she's obviously a popular lady because she got voted in she managed to get two seats so what did she do she took up the Laytown Bettystown seat and her nominee for the Ashburn seat was another lady by the name of Amanda Smith and she was ratified by the council members which see you can do that in the council you can't do that in a general election there would have to be a by-election instead 1850 333 103 Bernie's taking your calls text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103 C103 Jobs With Hewitt College Now enrolling for full-time fifth and sixth year and repeat Leaving Cert programmes Your success is built on their experience See hewittcollege.ie Charleville Hire and Platform They've got vacancies for a plant access fitter and they're also looking for a lorry driver with a C1 licence Experienced scaffolder wanted for immediate start that's in Clonakilty while a milk recorder contract Contractor is required for Blarney, Carrigaline, Middleton, Skull and Bantry. And general insurance brokers in Bantam are looking for somebody to advise and guide new and existing customers on all aspects of insurance, everything from house to motor to farm and to shop. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Record today on C103. Call Patricia with your comment. 1850-333-103. And thank you to a listener who sent in a text saying, Hi Patricia, my husband yesterday realised in McCroom that he'd lost his wallet. But when he got to McCroom, he realised he had lost his wallet in Bandon. So when he realised it was gone, he phoned the last shop he was in to see if perhaps they had found it. So they said, look, we'll take a look out in the car park. Maybe you dropped it as you were getting back into the car and they said we'll get back to you. In the meantime he got a phone call from a bank in Bandon to say somebody had handed in his wallet. Now he asked the person in the bank did they get the name of the person who had handed it in but unfortunately they didn't. Somebody just walked in and said found this and then the bank managed to uh, track down the person. So uh, this lady has texted us to say, would you say a huge thank you to that kind, generous person who was in Bandon yesterday and who handed in a wallet? The money and the cards were all in the wallet, nothing missing. Luckily, luckily, somebody was very honest and straight away acted and handed it straight into the bank so there was no cancelling of cards because that in itself can be an absolute nightmare. So well done. I'd love to if we could find out who that person is. Perhaps the person is listening or perhaps you heard of somebody who found a wallet with cards and money in it and straight away into the bank with it and handed it in. Let us know. But uh, it's a real, real act of honesty and an act of kindness. It's, it's terrific. It'll come back to that person, I promise. You. 1850 Now over the last week people across the West Cork region were stunned and shocked about possible changes to services at Bantry General Hospital which as one GP told us could effectively turn it into a glorified nursing home. Bantry Hospital Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Users Action Group are hosting a public meeting which will take place next Monday night. And to find out more, I'm joined by uh, Dave Deneen. Good morning to you, Dave. Hi, Patricia. Hi. You, uh, well, you're very welcome uh, to the programme. I suppose, let's start. Who have you invited to attend the meeting? Uh, we've invited all the TDs and indeed a prospective candidate. And yesterday we put in a request that Simon Harris would attend as well. Now, that has been met favourably. Um, we have sent off an email this morning uh, to his uh, uh, private secretary to see if that can happen. And at the very least, we'll be asking him to send a junior minister uh, and at the very, very, very least, we'll be saying to him, listen, we want a letter um, outlining what the proposals are, you know. Um, it's a very crucial meeting. It has fast turned into the, the pivotal meeting. And uh, as you know, West Cork is a treaty, so those people that are coming understand that there's going to be attended by a sizable amount and that Bantry Hospital really matters. Um, and they're hearing that message loud and clear, you know. Have you asked any of the executives from the HSC, any of the officials? Yes, uh, we Great. sent in a request to them. Uh, we're still awaiting back confirmation whether they're going to attend or not. And, and the most important thing that I suppose, well, one of the most important things is to get the message across that this meeting isn't an angry fest. It okay. isn't dumping at the tables. It is nothing like that. It is inviting people, the medical professionals, it is inviting the HSE and the TDs to come together around the table and to listen to what the people have to say, you know. And there's an awful lot of people that are sitting at home and listening to radio and television and you know, their life choices are going to be made in this, you know. If we take an example of Mrs. Murphy out in Mizzen or, or Mr. Murphy that is out in the Goalene or some place like that. And, you know, they're heading into their elderly years and they find out that the local hospital isn't um, an A&E. Then they have to make a choice. Do they stay where there's no A&E or do they put themselves and long life near a place where an A&E, you know. And it's as simple as that. And, and that goes for people with MS. And that goes for people right across the spectrum of diseases and indeed rare diseases. Like one of the things that I haven't really heard so much is uh, that there is two positions in their two consultancies that are vacant at the moment. And um, one is being vacated by Dr. Oliver and the other one is being vacated by Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Abu Gabi, who have retired. Now, those positions are very much open. As I understand it, and I stand to be corrected, Dr. Oliver, out of the kindness, and Dr. You probably the kindness are still attending their patients just while the position. So we need these things concreted. What are they doing? And indeed, our services should be upgraded. We have, if we just look at the industry, if we look at roads, if we look at the refinery, if we look at, um, if we look at Bantry Business Association have done Trojan work in the chamber in the last couple of years to bring a, a tech hub to the area. It recently won awards and how can we bring people and how can we consolidate works, uh, work for people and jobs for people in the West Cork area if we don't have these services? These services that come in look for these in quality of life and I'm sure we'll go right down the scale of quality of life. And even if we take that away, if we take that away and leave that to the side and just look at uh, the human side of it, the doctors that are in the locality, I'm quite sure, I was thinking about this, we had a discussion about this the other night, that I'm quite sure that the likes of Dr. Gita, Dr. Sullivan, and indeed a lot of the medical, they're doing it for love. I'm quite sure they're not doing it for money because if you had a forensic accountant in and examined, they would say that they're operating at a loss. And these doctors do it because 
And I know last week when I interviewed uh, one of the GPs, Dr. Geeta, I could not believe the way that woman spoke about her patients and the reason that she and and she was, you know, and and I know if I invited any of the other GPs, they would have all been saying similar things. Uh, It was uh, first and foremost, first and foremost in their thoughts was the care of their patients yeah. and how this yeah. was going to affect uh, their patients. So this is this meeting is a chance then, Dave, I take it, for members of the public perhaps to share their stories of Bantry General and how Bantry General yeah. perhaps have helped them personally or a family member. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I suppose, I suppose look, the word Bantry Hospital is there simply because it's in Bantry, but this affects the whole of West Cork. And I genuinely mean it is the one issue that is going from Clannacilty, that's going from Bandon, that's going from Skibbereen, that is going to Bantry, that's going to the Manway, copying, and it's been right across the spectrum, Cookstone. And it has affected everybody. Somebody has an aunt and uncle that either used the A&E, used the services, or are using the services. They have a world-class facility down there in mental health. There's, um, the doctor's name, excuse me, that they've worked very hard for. So the, the, the consultants and every and the public are very much vested in this, and it goes right across this. It goes right across the people, you know. Um, and let's not. I know we caused in last week from Kerry people people travel from mm-hmm. Kerry across the border, and also a couple of other people were pointing out that they used the services of Bantry General Hospital when they were on holidays. They were on a summer holiday in West Cork absolutely. when something yeah. went wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Michael Collins mentioned there last week, and it's probably the only thing that they disagreed with. He said eighty thousand people in West Cork, and in fact, because the staff say that that could increase up to one hundred and fifty thousand during the during summer. During the summer, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And then, as you know, there's a specialist. It's a specialist service. They wouldn't say it, but if you have a farmer that that has got caught by a tractor or injured or on the farm, it's chances are that the people working there know injury because they've worked on farms and they have an in-depth knowledge. As soon as it goes for the mother run and either the triathlons that take place, they're invested in it and they know what can cause it and they're on top of it straight away. We need to harness that, as they say in the game, emotion, intelligence. That's the stuff that makes uh, West Cork unique, you know. And And, uh, Dave, are you unconvinced by statements from the HSC to say there are no current plans to downgrade the hospital? Do you take Absolutely. any comfort from those statements? No, I don't make no comfort whatsoever because it is very easy to sit behind and um, it's very easy to sit behind and make statements that, that that can be done very easily. But I think what they're missing the point is what it actually means to the people. That is an emotional investment and they're missing that. And they're missing the point that, you know, it's very easy to say people from Mizzen and did and go to CUH. Well, you know, you've got to have a care. You've got to get people up. Will the minister cover the cost of people staying overnight up there because we look at mental health and we look at all these different things out there that are in the mind and you know having a patient inside a hospital whether it's elderly young having a visitor come in and sit there and talk to them can do more than any drug and the care can do more than any and that is an abundance in West Cork now I'm unfortunate to have UCUH and Jews Banking Hospital in the last couple of years and I can tell you there's a vast difference between CUH they're still caring it's to look after you, but Bantry Hospital has that unique appeal. Um, I can remember going there to Dr. Abigail four years ago and he saved my life. He's seen something with inside me and, you know, for the last previous year, before that, um, I was going to doctor after doctor 
and he's seen us until next week. I was up on the operating theatre in the UH and my life was saved out of massive access. And, uh, but that was picked up, your point is that was picked up by a doctor at Bantry Hospital. Bantry Hospital. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've seen in, in it's in the Echo uh, today, there's a, a great letter has been written by a group of GPs who are, who are training uh, in Cork and they're doing part of their training in West Cork and they say in the letter, uh, this group of, of young GPs, we have all worked in Bantry Hospital at various grades in the last number of years. We've also been fortunate enough to gain experience abroad in different healthcare systems and work environments. From our experience, the services provided in Bantry Hospital, given the resources available, are first class. The calibre and commitment of staff in West Cork, including the islands and parts of Kerry, is something to be admired and encouraged. And they talk about they've also worked in CUH and in the Mercy. And while that is, you know, they've experienced firsthand the pressure that the CUH and the Mercy Hospital are already under without adding patients who are currently being dealt with in Bantry, don't send them up the road to Cork. Absolutely, and I would agree wholeheartedly with that. And I would also add into that, I would also add into that the nurses, the care staff, the cleaning staff. I spent uh, four weeks in Bantry Hospital and I was well cared for, but what really struck me, because I couldn't move over the bed, was that I was in a ward with patients and some of them had different difficulties and there was one gentleman there in the Adiumenta and they sat with him, the nurses, and they gently coaxed and they made him eat, and they were sitting down, they were the nicest people. And every day used to re- reduce me to tears because the care that I got, but watching the care staff, watching the cleaning staff coming in and saying, how are you, are you keeping well? And there was no, they didn't see no disease. They seen the human, and that goes right across uh, Bantry Hospital, and it goes into the mental health services, and that is to be kept. So, so Dave, what to, to make this issue go away? What are you looking for? What can the HSC, or if you get Simon Harris, even better, what can they do to convince you that this hospital will remain as is? Well, what we're looking for is the well, one number one thing is the upgraded services that the consultants are put back in place and their plans for the future to lay them out on the table, and also a cast iron concrete guarantee that it's not going to happen, that the downgrading of the services won't happen, that there will be an upgrade and that they will liaison with the GP, that they will liaison with the with the tenants, with people who are invested in this and the public, and that they will make them aware of their plans because what I'm saying to them is, is that there's plenty of people that are listening to this on the airways and they're doing a brilliant job in the media and they're reporting it brilliantly, but we need to allay the fears of the elderly, of the sick, and we need to say to them, listen, we're working hard and these services are going to be kept and indeed we're going to uh, we're going to upgrade them. Um, I just want to say, just under, you spoke about Dr. Gita, where you go, I listened to that interview and I really sat back and I thought and I went, if there's a doctor of that calibre and indeed Dr. Sullivan and Debrino and the other ones, if there's a doctor of that calibre coming out and publicly stating that and breaking and if just coming out and saying that, then that's the time to act. That's the time that we should be really worried about that and that we should take note of this. And again, it goes right across from Bandon, Clannacilty, Skibbereen, right across the way. People, if they can make it on Monday night at 7.30, please come along. Um, please come along with a question. 
the doctors and we've invited people there and ask them. Or just, co- just come along to show your support. You don't have show to speak support, as I know absolutely. some people go, oh, I wouldn't be able to talk. You don't have to speak. But just you by coming, by coming, you are showing your support. It's the Maritime Hotel in Bantry and it is next Monday night at uh, half past yeah, seven. Yeah, How is the online petition? Are you involved with that, Dave? Or um, are you keeping an, are you keeping an eye on it? I'm, oh, absolutely. I'm keeping an eye on it. What I would say is that um, there is a petition as well, if anyone can't make it Monday night, that there will be people out in Bantry Market uh, tomorrow uh, gathering sig- signatures for the petition as well. And um, so they'll be out there as well. And, and I know Taris Jock, the charity shop in Dunmanway, yeah. they have one that people can pop into as well and yeah, sign. Absolutely, Seamus and the people, the, they're just, they're, they're hidden gems in West Cork, you know. And yeah. there's a lot of people they deal with, an awful lot of people as well in the public health nurses. And, you know, they know the truth to this. And you know what the effects of this will be, you know. Okay. And, and what's and what's what's needed is from the HSE to absolutely categorically state that the twenty four hour acute medical emergency access to the hospital will yeah. remain in place, and that wasn't contained in the statements absolutely that we not. got last week. And a commitment week. to work with the people. Yeah. And a commitment to work okay. with the people. Okay. All right. We will remind listeners again of the meeting on Monday, and uh, Dave, you'll join us on Tuesday to let us know how the meeting went. I am, and I will say as well, Patricia, that uh, yourselves have been brilliant and, your, your, and the Southern Star have been brilliant as well and that the media will be present as well to okay. report back okay. to the people as well so they'll be able to pick it up if they can't make it on Tuesday. OK, and we look forward to chatting to you, Dave. Good luck with it and Patricia, thanks a million. Thanks very much. Thanks Thank for joining you. us. Bye-bye, Bye-bye Dave uh, Deneen, one of the organisers of that public meeting with all of the elected TDs, all of the candidates running in the election, HSE officials, all the GPs, anyone involved with Bantry Hospital and Simon Harris himself. The Minister for Health has been uh, invited. Uh, Madge says, bravo to that superb speaker on Bantry Hospital. We fundraise const- constantly. And don't forget, yeah, people in West Cork have been fantastic. The Friends of Bantry Hospital, they put in the first uh, CT scanner. Wasn't that the Friends of Bantry Hospital that, that was fundraised for? There's just such a... a a feeling of love and respect and admiration for everybody that works in that hospital and everyone either has a story of a family member or knows of somebody and everybody just speaks highly. It's just it's one of those little hidden gems in West Cork that we need to hang on to and we can never forget the geographical location of that hospital. That's why it always has to be treated different to any other hospital anywhere else in the country because of the geographical nature of the area and how far people would be from um, an acute medical emergency. If they had an acute medical emergency, how far somebody on the tip of the Bear Peninsula would be it's still a long enough drive to get them into Bantry, let alone expecting them to bypass the hospital and go straight on into the city. So that meeting, if you want to go along, is a public meeting open to one and all half past seven in the Maritime Hotel in Bantry next Monday night at half past seven. As I say, we will catch up with uh, Dave Deneen, who we just spoke with. He'll join us again on Tuesday morning next uh, for those that are not able to attend. 1850-333-103. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp 0862-103-103. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. 
Record today on C103. Text or WhatsApp Patricia with your comment. 086-2103-103. And we are going to Fomoy Garda Station for this week's Gardafi, where I'm joined by Sergeant John Kelly. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Patricia. And a reasonably quiet week, which is good to hear, but you do have details of one break-in that you want to draw attention to. Yeah, one one break-in, and I suppose it's uh, refreshingly quiet because we've only had, uh, as I said, and we have to go back to last Thursday for that. It, um, so exactly one week ago, if people can cast their mind back, uh, between 8.30 in the morning and uh, about 6.30 that afternoon, a uh, uh, number of sheds were broken into at the back of a house at Gortine in Cantork, um, and some machinery w- was taken, some gardening equipment. Uh, there w- was a hedge trimmer, a Tanica hedge trimmer, a Tanica leaf blower, and a, a Tanica regular strimmer, a toolbox, rake. It, it was all gardening equipment, you know. But if anybody is going to a boot sale, just to keep their, mind, their, their eyes open, uh, Tanica make, I have a couple of pieces uh, myself. They're, they're orange in colour, so, I mean, they're quite distinctive. Um, and they have Tanica uh, written on it, I take it, do they? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But they're they're... Quite, they're quite distinctive, you know, for okay. people to keep, and especially if they see maybe three items uh, that are the same together, you know. And uh, I'd say to people, look, question themselves as regards, look, is, is anybody really going to, um, is anybody really going to be selling some stuff that's only a couple of months old, you know? Mm. And and they're always very obviously they have. It's very obvious to somebody buying them that they have been used because many of them, you know, won't even be in the box when they're selling them. Absolutely, at the car, car absolutely. So you have to stop and question. How does a guy get this many hedge trimmers or whatever power tools, whatever it is he's selling? And I know last week when we were doing the crime file from the Gardaí in West Cork, they had a number of sheds that had been broken into. So whether it's the time of the year for it, and they'll start coming, you know, we'll start seeing them at yes. car boot sales. And if someone's at a car boot sale, call it in. I mean, ring ring the local Gardaí. Absolutely, I quite agree. You know, so that at least a Garda present can be seen to come down and just w- walk around and take stock exactly of, w- of what's there, you know. And sometimes, you know, we'd always say to people if they can, you know, maybe it's only a couple of uh, uh, marks to put put on one as regards their, their air code or some other identifying mark, uh, you know, even if there's only to put different colours on them, you know, get a kind of spray, you know, just spray them somewhat differently that they will stand out, make them unattractive, both for, both for people stealing them and for both people potentially buying will question as well, as well where did they come from, yeah, you know. Yeah. But particularly, you know, um, to ask themselves the question, why is somebody just after selling on uh, stuff that's only a few months old, yeah, you know, yeah, good working order, yeah. like a lot of people will maintain their gardening equipment, you know, because they're after paying maybe 300 quid for a hedge trimmer. Yeah, they're, they're not Cheap. They're, they're not, not cheap, no. They're not and cheap. then that—that's why you question as well. If somebody is selling them on cheap, why are they selling them on cheap? There's, you know, it's alarm bells should start should start to ring. And look at shed security. It just, you know, lock up exactly. your sheds. Exactly. And now, in all in all fairness, those sheds were locked, but those sheds were forced open. You know, and the difficulty is that sometimes uh, I don't quite know whether those were wooden sheds or not. But it can be hard when you're trying to secure something and you've only got a metal hasp and, and a padlock to secure with a bolt. You know. Mm. Um, so you know, and I suppose to, just to mention farm security there, you know, as I'm talking, um, just for people to look around where their tools, quads, trailers, and other expensive equipment have been. 
taken, you know, are they vulnerable to theft? You know, if you if you have one good shed and you can put a considerable steel door on it, you know, with um, hinges that aren't exposed and with a good quality, uh, what I would call a battleship padlock, something very, very heavy that uh, you'll only can take off with an angle grinder. You know, if, if, if you have a window on it, well, consider replacing the window with glass blocks, you know, because I mean, yeah. you'll get the same light into the shed, but again, they're like breaking a, <clears throat> they're like breaking a concrete block, you know, to get in. So there's ways and means, uh, you know, of securing sheds. Um, but what you can use as well for marking equipment, you know, a soldering iron is effective for permanent marking on, on, on plastic areas. And you can pick up a small soldering iron, you know, very cheap there for probably 110 or sometimes, you, you, you know, in some of the German multiples or other places. Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, etching or engraving can be done on, underneath machinery, you know, but plenty of marking to make the thing, you, you know, stand out. Photograph your machinery and tools, you know, to get an idea of scale, just to have somebody stand alongside them, you know, because quads are always something that um, they will get taken. You know, and uh, they get sold on and they could end up inside on, you, you, you know, a large site never to be seen again on a public road, you know. And if you have a house <coughs> alarm, it's worth keeping it in mind to put a sensor out on a shed, isn't it? 100%. Yeah. 100%. Or in the case as well, you know, we have a situation where I, sw- I suppose a farm, sometimes 40 acres will come up maybe two miles down the road. Uh, a farmer will buy it. You, you know, he already might have, a sh- there might be already a shed, a good quality shed on that. You know, consider using that as a one-stop shop for, for all your, your, your quads and all your other farming equipment that you will need to keep on that outside farm and put um, put a standalone alarm on that because those kind of places are being targeted. And we see with Irish agriculture, there is a, there is a move on for consolidation of farms and smaller farms like that, you, you know, to get sold and to be bought up. But people, rather than bringing over the, the tools and equipment, you know, every day over to the farm, they probably will leave some stuff on site. If you're leaving it on site, you need to have it properly properly secured. <clears throat> um, Patricia, just a final word okay. <clears throat> there about another thing that, that I've seen. And... Um, We've seen, as regards uh, a problem that we identified there some time ago, the tap-and-go cards are causing a problem again. I saw one incident there in, in, the, in the last week, you know, where we put everything like that, it goes under fraud on our system, you know. Um, but I saw one incident, and it led, to, it led to six other incidents, you know, whereby you can tap, I think, uh, three times in one day, um, each time for a sum less than, less than 30 euros. Mm-hmm. So please, for people to keep, uh, you know, it's, it's not just a case of a, it's a lost card anymore. You it's know. cash. It's cash. It's, it's cash. It's yeah. cash. Yeah. You basically drop 90 quid. Yeah. You know, so for people to just bear in mind, you know, if you have a card, don't be keeping it in the back pocket, keep it inside in the wallet, you know, and treat it as cash. Because straight away, you go to any checkout now, you, you, you know, and uh, you would be kind of directed, you know, my staff in a way, you, you know, to kind of, it's more convenient for them, it's a lot more convenient for the user to tap to just the card and... And, and, and off you go. And, uh, yeah. yeah. So, but for people just to treat them as cash because it can cause a, uh, um, an awful lot of money has been uh, bled through the system. This yeah, way as well, and actually, because you know? we had a listener contact us from West Cork yeah. whose husband yesterday 
lost his wallet um, in Bandon and somebody handed it into the bank, the cards, the money and we were just saying how great and how honest people are and I straight away thought of the tap and go. I was thinking if there was a tap and go card besides they could have taken the cash that was already in the wallet and they could have used the cards to get another 90 I, I just heard so, that. Yeah. I, I just heard that uh, earlier on the programme you know and like the important thing is you know the majority of people out there you know are, are honest and if they do find something we'll hand it in you know um, but you know I just say to people be very, very careful yeah. of the tap and go cards. Okay. You know? All right. Thank, Thank you very you much. For that, John. Have a good again. week. We'll talk again. That is Sergeant John Kelly joining us from, from Moygar, the station. And Mary Newmarket was also listening to the story of the lost wallet uh, yesterday and uh, says, honesty always shines through. And it does. And it, it's a lovely, lovely trait to be that honest. A listener wants to know is there any petition for Bantry Hospital in Skibbereen? I don't know of one where you can actually go in and sign a petition. If you want to go online, you can. If you go to the Friends of Bantry Hospital Facebook page there's a link there but if anybody can tell us one where you can actually sign I appreciate not everybody's on Facebook uh, so if, if anybody can tell us if, is there a, a petition in Skibbereen a listener wants to know and Dan in Bandon says the Minister and I'm assuming uh, Simon Harris made a statement this morning to assure people there would be no downgrading of Bantry Hospital why didn't you mention this during the interview well we did mention that there's been lots of statements including a statement from the HSC saying that they, there's no they've no intention of downgrading Bantry Hospital but what people want Dan in Bandon is a firm assurance from the Minister the Department of Health and more importantly from the HSC because remember the people in the HSC will be there long after Simon Harris and whoever is replaced by Simon Harris long after the Minister for Health uh, is gone so it's the it's the officials in the HSC we need a firm commitment that the 24 hour acute medical emergency access to the hospital will remain in place all of the statements that have come out to date from all of the government and from the HSE are not stating in black and white that the 24-hour acute medical emergency access to the hospital remains in place. We are looking for your pet questions. Please, our resident vet will join us in studio after half past 12. So if you have a pet question, 1850-333-103 or you can text to 0862-103-103. Still getting in calls and comments about the election and about the first of the leaders' debate last night. Jerry in from Moy. Watched the debate last night. He felt that Leo Varadkar spent too much time looking back. Should he not be looking forward? Brendan Grace, says Jerry, Lord Shimmerson, once said many years ago that politicians are like a bunch of bananas. They're yellow. And there isn't a straight one in the bunch. <laughs> That's such a Brendan Grace statement. Uh, Michael in Buttevant says, these politicians who are getting huge salaries and then walking away with massive retirement packages. Remember, we went through the 17 who are retiring. We spoke about that yesterday on the programme. Some of them are the same ones who came down to Ballyhay and supported the march against the bondholders. Remember, every Sunday there used to be a march in Ballyhay and the bailout. It's sickening to see former ministers and Taoiseachs walking away with huge pensions says Michael in Botterment. He's certainly not happy with that. Some of your texts, John said, last night's debate was a bore fest Ooh. by two failed politicians, according to John. Michael Martin was a minister in a government that put 40 billion 
euro debt onto the taxpayers. This debt, the Anglo portion, will continue until at least 2035. Leo Varadkar has failed on housing, health and has only become aware of the pension debacle since the election was called. So John wasn't impressed with either of the two politicians last night. Eamon and Cove says, Patricia, could I just say that it doesn't matter whether Micheál Martin or Leo Varadkar performed better than the other in a televised debate. What matters are the policies, not the personalities. The media distorts things. I, by the way, will not be voting for either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. My vote will be going to solidarity. That's from Eamon in uh, Cove. And thank you to somebody who pointed this out to me. You remember when I was talking about Peter Casey, when someone was saying, how can Peter Casey run in two constituencies? And I was saying it's possible. And we were going through the rules and regulations under the election laws in this country. And then the most recent election we had was the local elections last year. And there was a lady by the name of Sharon Cogan up in Meath who won two seats. She ran in Leytown, Bettystown and in Ashburn and then she took up the Leytown, Bettystown seat and her nominee then got the Ashburn seat so saying that it has happened before. Somebody says and I was saying I wonder why that she'd ran in the two constituencies and I was wondering did she live somewhere in both and she reckoned she had votes in both which you know obviously covering all of her options and this says Patricia I'd say Sharon Cogan the councillor you're talking about her reasons for running in two areas were more financially motivated than anything else she was the same councillor who was complaining about two weeks ago having not received two state grants for running the fact that she won two seats you can google it if you want to fact check fact check it it was on independent.ie so I did google it and I did find it and then I said oh that was the woman her name just didn't register with me she's an independent Meath County Councillor Sharon uh, Gagan and all female candidates and I didn't know this all female candidates who ran in the local elections were entitled to a one-off €250 payment under a government initiative, which the reason for it was to encourage more women to run for office. And I'm assuming they only got it if they got elected. Anyway, she ran in the two electoral areas, as as we mentioned. She received €250 after her successful election and when she took up her seat in the Leytown, Town constituency for Meath County Council. But then she got on to the Minister for State John Paul Phelan to say well I won a second seat even though she's not sitting in the second seat can I have the €250 for that Minister for State for Local Government Minister Phelan the officials there wrote back to her and said no that she wasn't she was only entitled to one payment as under the scheme she was considered to be only one candidate on the second seat she said they refused to pay me which I thought was very unjust and unfair on an independent woman. She said €250 is a massive amount of money to an independent councillor and she said the additional money would have helped fund her two constituency offices and she said political parties are funded left, right and centre and independents get no funding at all and so she was very aggrieved by it. And then I realised she's also the same councillor who uh, the 12th, when did this happen? Last week this happened. Her, one of her constituency office was targeted and destroyed by fire. Somebody smashed in the window and threw in some, you know, I'm not seeing a petrol bomb, but threw in some kind of petrol and, and set it alight and her, her office was destroyed. Now, it could have been much more serious because adjoining her offices, her office are apartments. So, you know, it, it could have been, uh, that could have been a very, very nasty situation. And she reckoned the reason why she was targeted was this was a constituency office in Dulique 
in County Meath and uh, she reckons that the arson um, attack was not only an attack on me but on the people of the area. She has been very vocal about drug gangs in Dulique and the surrounding district and she, obviously she could only speculate as to the reasons behind the act of violence and intimidation but she was she's suspecting that that could be the reason so she was one and the same so thank you to somebody who's well up in the know just the name Sharon Gagan it meant nothing uh, to me at the time but the minute I started googling it I realised exactly who the lady was so thank you to whoever sent in that text to 0862103103 and also on the election. Hi Patricia, there were great goodies being promised by all of the political candidates. What about the 200 billion, the national debt that we owe? Who said we are a very rich country? If we were, would we not have built plenty of houses and hospitals, etc.? It's amazing that we hear nothing about where all this money is coming from with all the promises that are being made. The politicians also can get the most expensive mobile phones every year, some costing over €1,000. I, by the way, says this texter, have the same mobile phone for three years and nobody bought it for me. I bought it for myself, but I suppose that goes down to what they're entitled to, what politicians are entitled to claim and expenses and all of that. And it is certainly a part of political life that annoys, that certainly annoys uh, a lot of people. And just one final one on elections from Audrey. She says the election people, these are the canvassers and their representatives, are calling around to elderly people's homes and they're doing it in the dark, which they should not be doing. As some old people are very afraid to open doors and they can be at home watching their bit of TV or listening to the radio and the doorbell rings, there's a knock on the door and it can really frighten elderly people. Audrey feels that all canvassing should only be done in daylight hours. And that's one of the reasons why most, if you asked most of the candidates running, have they a preference for the time of year that they like to go out and canvas? And they will all say the summer months for that very reason. You know, when there's a long stretch in the evening, in the summer, height of the summer, we can have, you know, brightness half nine, ten o'clock at night. So there's a long evening there to go out and canvas. Whereas now it's still dark by about five o'clock. There's a bit of a stretch there at the moment, but from about five o'clock onwards, it's certainly starting to get dark and, you know, pitch black, certainly before six o'clock. So if all of the canvassing was to be done in daylight hours, I suppose the candidates would say that they wouldn't have staff available to them. Many of the people who go canvassing with them, they're not necessarily staff, they're friends and party supporters and they will work during the day. So evening times, Evening times are certainly the main time to go out and canvas. But I absolutely am hearing your message, Audrey, and I know what you're saying. And I'm sure the candidates do their best to be aware that when they are canvassing in an area, because normally when they canvass in an area, they'll have a local person with them who will know the lie of the land, who will know that, oh, Mrs Murphy's in that house and she's on her own and she might be a bit nervous about us uh, us knocking, even though it might only be at seven o'clock but the fact that it's the dark evening. So I'm assuming candidates are very aware of that. But yeah, there will be older people who won't like the idea that they're having uh, knocks on doors. Not just older people, members of some members of the public don't like to have people canvassing at all. I haven't seen any signs go up. I know in some of the other elections, people have put signs up on their doors saying, telling people not to not to call and I'm assuming people absolutely honour that if they see a sign saying no canvassers uh, please and 
seeing as I've been asking you for your pet questions, keep those coming. Here's a, a, a message for a dog that's gone missing. Not a message for a dog. but a message to try and find this dog. Hi Patricia, my dog is missing since Tuesday. He's a black lurcher. He has four white socks and a small bit of white on his tail. He is very friendly. Did anybody see him? Or has anybody heard about a black lurcher with a little bit of white Anybody maybe heard somebody talking that they spotted just such a dog in the area? Uh, missing from the Ballinine area. Uh, I would really appreciate if you could call out my number, please. It's 086 109 7298. That's 086 109 7298. So the Ballinine area, please. A lurcher, black lurcher, missing since Tuesday of this week. White socks and a small bit of white on, on its tail. And anyone that knows lurcher dogs will know they're such adorable dogs and they are extremely friendly. Let's see if we can get that dog returned uh, to that listener who's contacted us. Uh, give us a, a shout if you can help us with that one. There's a fantastic story and it's picked up in all of the papers today of the Murphy Quads who were born in Cork and they are celebrating their 18th birthday and they celebrate it by going along to the hospital to visit the medical team who 18 years ago safely delivered them. Now the four girls are Kelly, Katie, Shauna and Amy. They met with some of the original team of the 45 expert staff who were led by Professor John Higgins who was the consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist he is at the Cork University Hospital but 18 years ago he wasn't working at Cork University Hospital he was working in the Urnville Hospital because that's where the where the quads were born by cesarean section they arrived 13 weeks early on January the 22nd 2002 and maternity hospitals of course in the Urnville then moved to CUMH we also had maternity services in St Finbar's and we have maternity services in the Bon Secure the hospital younger people listening to us probably won't even know that there was there was a number of maternity hospitals but they all moved over then to CUMH anyway Professor Higgins uh, was there he said it was fantastic to see them so full of life and so articulate he said they're all so completely different with lots of their own ambitions he said I haven't seen them in 18 years and he said I remember every single bit of the day. They were just over 13 weeks early when their mum went into into labour. He said we had 45 minutes to get all of the staff and all of the equipment in place. It required, he said, the whole hospital, the whole of the Urnville at the time, working together to make sure they were delivered safely. And he said you want every delivery to turn out as they have. He said they're perfect. Isn't that a lovely, lovely thing for Professor Higgins uh, to say? Well done. The Murphys were the first set of quads born in Cork, but they were very lucky because the very same said Professor Higgins had delivered two sets of quads while he was working in Australia. And that must have given huge comfort to the girls' parents, uh, Patrick and Breda. Breda said it was great to remember all of the faces and to see Professor Higgins again. It was at 9.30am yesterday morning, 18 years ago, that there was poor Breda at home and she started to get niggly pains and realised, oh my God, this is more than just niggly pains. I'm in a bit of bother here. And by 11am, Kelly was born, then Katie, then Shauna and Amy was the last to be born. They were tiny. Katie was just one pound uh, 14 ounces. Oh God, she'd fit it in the palm of your hand. And mum Breda said, 
the hospital saved them. They were taken to the neonatal unit. They were hooked up to machines. She said, we got to take Kelly home after eight weeks. And Katie was the last one to come home. And she came home uh, when she was just uh, 10 weeks old. And now she said they're 18. They're starting new dimension of life. Shauna's driving. Well done, Shauna. And they're all doing their leaving cert. And they just wanted to go back to say thank you to the hospital. She said it was fantastic to come up after all these years and to see the staff and particularly to see Professor Higgins and the girls are celebrating their milestone birthday with family or they date after their trip to CUMH but they're deferring a bigger party with friends. Why? They're pre- leaving certificate exams are going to start next uh, week. They uh, And they're all going on to do different uh, things um, Liz Dunphy writing in the pay, in the examiner today uh, saying they're all going on different career paths. One wants to study arts, one wants to teach in secondary school, one wants to groom dogs and the other wants to work in cyber security. But they really are fantastic and they are a credit, a credit to their family and gorgeous, gorgeous photographs in the paper and some throwback photographs as well. Throwbacks of them in 2003. I'm assuming that was a, probably their, their, their first birthday. And then there's a lovely one of them uh, eight years ago when they were celebrating their 10th birthday. And now um, at 18. So happy birthday to the Murphy uh, quads, to Kelly, to Katie, to Shona and to Amy. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council. Supporting businesses, supporting communities, serving Cork. Visit corkcoco.ie. Butterbent pantomime sleeping not so beauty that was scheduled to run this Friday and Saturday night but it's been postponed due to a bereavement so it will now run on Friday and Saturday of the following weekend 31st of January and the 1st of February in Butterbent the burning of Cork that's going to be the topic for the first public lecture hosted by Dukas Clonakilty Heritage for 2020 Michael Lenahan will deliver the lecture tonight 8 o'clock in Clonakilty Parish Centre Kildallery Lotto Draw taking place tonight. Sheehan's Bar jackpot there four thousand six hundred euro. And we've been asked to wish the best of luck to Mallow Town's under thirteen team who travelled to Letterkenny to play in the last thirty two of the Schoolboys Football Association of Ireland National Cup, and that's happening tomorrow. The game will start at twelve noon, and you can actually get live updates from the match tomorrow on the Mallow Town FC Facebook page. And the National Council for the Blind are looking for volunteers for their charity shop in Dunmanway. If you could spare a few hours, can you contact Lynn, please, at 086 348 And Fremont GAA are hosting a grand variety concert on Saturday night. It features Ellie Marie O'Dwyer, the Fremont Choir and the Mockra Capers sketches. There'll be lots of great music, song and dance. Starts at 8 o'clock on Saturday night in Fremont Community Centre. Court today on C103. Call Patricia with your comment. 1850-333-103. And remember in particular we are looking for your pet questions. Please for Jane Pickett, our resident vet, 1850-333-103 or you can text a pet question to 0862-103-103. Don't WhatsApp us please because that's not working at the moment. Still getting in. Uh, oh, before we get to commentary on pensions and in Cork City says the government is not running the country like a business and that's really the way the country should be run and would suggest that everyone
Sunday morning there would be a meeting to highlight where the problems are. They should be obliged to take a family out of emergency accommodation every single day. They should clear out the offices at the HSC. If they're spending that amount of money on IT systems, then God help us all. Also, she says there was a large patch of ground for sale right next to CUH. It was for sale for years. Anne actually wrote to several different ministers at the time pointing out that there was this large patch of ground right beside CUH suggesting that the HSE should buy it because by doing it they'd be able to extend if nothing else the accident and emergency all to no avail and guess what happened since Suzanne the land got sold and there's now a little shop there and if anyone's been up to CUH you'll, you'll know exactly the patch of land that Anne is talking about where the little store is why didn't the HSE buy that land and it wasn't that they didn't know about it because our Anne was sending countless letters off to ministers uh, suggesting it now we were talking about pensions I think nearly every day this week and showing this anomaly I think is the word that you would have to use where people retire at 65 sometimes forced to retire at 65 and I was talking about that healthcare worker yesterday uh, and, and I was wondering what kind of contributions she had and she's been forced out of her job and then some people not able to live on job secrets benefit and how humiliating it is for some people who've never signed on to suddenly because of the, they, they are the rules and regulations. You've got to leave your job. You have to sign on and it can just be humiliating for some people. That's prompted uh, uh, Anne. Sir, please don't call out my surname. That's fine. To contact us to say on uh, when I was talking about healthcare workers, she said healthcare workers, I think, may not have the contributions towards their state pensions as civil servants definitely had. She said there was a change for new entrants into the civil service since 2014 but there is a sneaky bit their pensions from work will be deducted from the state pension amount at pension age I myself Suzanne retired at 64 I went on to do a course for a few months that stretched out my job secrets by six months as it was a different scheme and then automatically at 65 they didn't ask any questions workers would want to get their social welfare records ASAP as job sharers could be impacted too and end up with half stamps if they don't change their working weeks along the way. I know this because over 15 years I had to change my working week quite quite a few times, sometimes commencing either on a Wednesday or other times commencing on a Thursday. As per social welfare rules, someone on Job Seekers for nine months, then this is when we're at 65, then have to apply for Job Seekers Allowance. That's the one that's means tested and this is the payment that's catching the majority. As some will have had work pensions or they might have a spousal income and that's all taken into account. Patricia, a way around this might be for people to work 13 weeks out of the year and then you can roll the job seekers benefit on kind regards Suzanne uh, please keep my surname private and after all that at age 65 I now have a nice part time job on my own terms and availability which is now a bonus and I've also signed up for a part time one day course at UCC go you you really are enjoying your retirement and you of course now have your full state pension and then a lot of the papers are starting and I'm imagining a bit like us they're getting contacted by people who all have their own stories to tell and there's a story in the paper today of a Dublin man 
Peter Doody is his name. Uh, he's recently turned 65 and instead of it being a day of celebration, uh, he's finding it very difficult to stay positive because he's been forced into retirement. He is, he was a Lewis driver and a Lewis driver is, you know, along with many thousands of others, are one of the people that are compel- compelled to leave work at age 65. And then he found himself in the situation he wasn't able to stay, stay to claim his old age pensioner but showed you have to leave your job so he is now he's actually actively out looking for a new job because he says he can't afford to live on the job seekers benefit and he's one of the ones who was born after that date that we mentioned yesterday the 1st of January 1955 and when I was looking at this yesterday yeah it's anyone so it is anyone who hit 65 this year I thought it wasn't kicking in until next year but it's not uh, they will. He will now have to wait until he's sixty-seven, and he said, "I literally can't survive on job seekers' benefit for two for two years." He said, "I worked all my life. I paid my taxes. I done everything correctly. I always expected that I would automatically receive the pension once I turned turned sixty-five." But he said things have turned out very differently. He said, "At twelve o'clock last night, I was employed in a job that I absolutely love, but today I'm unemployed and I'm forced to sign on the doll." The dole. He said, I've done my best to prepare for this day, but he said there was only so much I could save. I will now have to pick up work elsewhere because I simply can't live on job seekers uh, alone. Isn't that unbelievable? And he's making the point that as a Lewis driver, he's fit and, fit and healthy looking man and he was willing to work for another two years because he said, I'm perfectly health, healthy. I'm perfectly capable of driving uh, a tram. He says there is, uh, this is a huge issue and he said he's seeing it everywhere he looks about forcing people to give up work at 65. He said there should be a logical reason behind their decision instead of putting everybody into the same basket. He's now thankfully his mortgage has been paid off and he is uh, debt free. But he still needs money. He still needs living money. And, and he wanted to stay on. And there's, you know, I know we were talking yesterday about people being forced to work on after 65. And if you're in a job where you feel you're able to do it, if you're fit, fit and you're healthy, he feels he's fit and he's healthy. He's not doing a very manual job. Very different if you're out on a building site, or, you know, you're up and down scaffolding or whatever. I can understand people being saying, I couldn't work past 65. But when you there are jobs that people feel after 65, I'm still capable of doing. And there's that poor man out and he has to uh, look for a job instead. It just doesn't make any sense at all. 1850-333-103. Bernie's taking your calls. We are looking for your pet questions, please. And you can text 86 Record today on C103. Text or WhatsApp Patricia with your comment. 0862103103. And uh, Jane Pickett, our resident vet of the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital, Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group, joins me in studio. Good afternoon to you. Hi there. And you you are very welcome. Questions, please, for Jane, 1850 Bernie's taking the questions. And a reminder, our WhatsApp isn't working. So please only text 0862103103. Lily in Kenturk has been on. She has a pug slash Jack Russell. She's claiming they're known as a jug. Yeah, jugs. Are they? Jugs. Oh, I yeah. have never heard of that. Less than two years old. He keeps chasing his tail okay. more in the evenings and he can get very agitated with it. He has, by the way, been fully wormed. OK, well, that's a good first step, certainly. I think worms are really important to, to rule out. Um, it's a little bit interesting. If this is quite a new behaviour from him or certainly has become a lot more prevalent recently it could be a few things 
So it could be that there is a genuine problem at the back end. So there might be a discomfort in the tail and he's trying to turn and see what's going on. But inevitably his body moves around and you get this circling and chasing the tail. So I would just check that nothing is wrong with the tail. You've done a really good job in worming because sometimes it can give them an itchy bottom if they have worms. So ruling that out is really important. The last thing I would be quite worried about is maybe a problem with the anal gland. So little dogs have two little kind of almost sacs. They're sometimes smaller than the size of a a raisin or a grape, something like that. And at the the bottom, they sit at kind of four o'clock and eight o'clock. And normally there's something that sits there, causes no problem in 90% of dogs. They fill up with little contents that are produced by the body and then empty away. Nobody knows anything about it. You might occasionally get a little bit of a fishy smell from your dog and that would be that. Okay. Now, sometimes they can get very full for one reason or another. They maybe just they're don't not empty. Emptying. Yeah, yeah, maybe they're not emptying properly. Um, and that can be associated with the diet, but sometimes it can be associated with infection. And we actually, I think we really underestimate how painful infections of the bottom glands can be. They can be really irritating. And certainly if you see your dog chasing the tail and getting really agitated by it or trying to, let's say, scoot his bottom along the floor, that would be another one. So where they kind of sit in a sitting position and then wobble themselves it. forward, dragging yeah. the bottom on yeah. the floor. That's a really key one. But all dogs present differently. They don't always read the rule book. So this little dog could well be presenting with tail chasing um, as a sign of discomfort. I think that will be one side of things. The second side of things would be more behavioural. Okay, if there's nothing physical going on, I would wonder if something has maybe stressed this little dog out or something has changed in the environment or even just boredom. Maybe we're not getting as much mental stimulation. The weather's been bad recently. Is, is it unusual that it's happening more in the evenings than any other time of the day? That's, is that a bit that's unusual? That's the one thing that makes me wonder is a component of this behavioural because sometimes they have a little bit more time in their hands in the evening. Yeah. Um, and they may just kind of start spinning around chasing the tail. I I would definitely, first and foremost, I would make... Rule out the anal I, glands. I would rule out the anal glands, yeah. rule out worms, rule out tail discomfort. So I think... A, a trip to your vet is 100% in order. So it's nothing f- so without anything physically wrong without with Without anything dog. physical. And they'll be able to have a, a chat and maybe delve a little bit deeper into his lifestyle at home. That if there is no physical reason for it, is it something behavioural? Is there something that could be modified at home to make him a little bit more relaxed? Because tail chasing um, can be a bad habit. It's like, it can be. It's like when you hear of dogs chasing cars. Exactly. If you don't break it quickly yeah. enough and early enough it just yeah. becomes a bad habit it becomes it? a bad habit but I think sometimes it can become almost a stress coping mechanism sometimes it's very much like us biting our nails things like that mm. um, but I think certainly far and away the more common side of things would be something physical that might be the problem like anal glands or tail discomfort um, the behavioural sources of let's say very frequent tail chasing will be a little bit less common that said some dogs can just chase their tail once in a blue moon and it's nothing to be worried about it's like ourselves going oh what's back there and having a little turn around yeah. But I think it's just a fine line between between the two. And I think with the frequency and kind of the how incessant he sounds like he is with his tail chasing, I'd just be I just get be a little checked. bit cautious and yeah. get checked out. And it's called a jug. A jug. A pug yeah. And a Jack Russell. There's lots of there's lots of the let's say the fancy crossbreeds. And it's kind of a good thing in a way because uh, you kind of you have the best of both breeds. You have a little bit of a, a cross, so you have the hybrid vigour. They tend to be a little bit less prone to let's say um inherited abnormalities than let's say purebred dogs would oh, be do sometimes. Oh. It's not the it's not the case for all of them I think responsible breeding is the key no matter what breed the Labradoodle was probably one of the first ones that that everyone they were they're hard to get though they're still there if you're not here and cavities are another one my son has one of the Labradoodles they're lovely well they ended up with two but they had to give one away because one was more 
No, they're cockapoos. One was more cocker spaniel than poodle, and yeah. the other one was more poodle than cocker spaniel. Yeah. Uh, but the first one, who was more cocker spaniel, mm. was quite vicious. Yeah, I think quite that, had that quite. I kept saying she's a red haired temperament, and, <laughs> and obviously they've small children in the house. They had no choice. Now she's gone on to a home mm-hmm. with just adults and has settled in and right. is getting on really well. And the yeah. aggression is gone. Mm. But it was when they introduced the second dog. Yeah. I think that was the stupid yeah. move suits her better I think it's all about finding an environment that suits the dog and we're all a little bit different I think sometimes we expect dogs to kind of mould to our own environment and they are very malleable they're incredibly adaptable creatures but it's very much like ourselves sometimes sometimes I might prefer to you know be a little bit quieter somebody else would prefer to have the music thumping in the house 99% of the time we're all a little bit different and dogs and cats are no different either they're the very same they're the very same okay Eileen in Bantry was on her dog is a Labrador cross Uh, it's a rescue dog so she's a bit unsure exactly Mm -hmm. what the dog is he's about five years old he has been having huge problems with wax in his ears now she's been to the vet the vet has been giving um canoral drops they work it calms it down but her problem is it keeps flaring up Mm. it then goes on it can cause sore throats it's a sore throat in in the dog and the dog really becomes very unwell so Mm -hmm. she's kind of looking for advice of you know what is this common with a Labrador cross and what can she do it can do um Ear disease can be incredibly frustrating both for the little dog involved but also for you guys as owners. It's frustrating because you don't like seeing your pet in discomfort. You don't like seeing them stressed out and there's no getting around the fact having ear disease, having an ear infection is stressful. It is uncomfortable. Um, I think you've done really well going to your vet, getting initial treatment but if it keeps reappearing it may just be that you need to pop back to your vet. It may be that different treatment is required your little dog just might be a little bit more prone than the average dog to ear disease. And sometimes that can be to do with either, let's say, the mix of bacteria that live normally on their skin or even just a little bit of a a different shape to their ear canal. Sometimes, let's say, the wax coming out of their ears may not come up and out of the ear as readily as another dog. Exactly. So some things, have a chat to your vet, but sometimes um, simple measures to control the wax like cleaning protocols so you're regularly cleaning them out. But again, I think if your dog has currently ear disease, it's not something I would be embarking upon without speaking to your own vet. Um, But certainly with ear disease, sometimes we can have uh, recurrent ear disease that's just a bit stubborn, can take a little while to cure. Sometimes it might have a slightly unusual bug growing down there. So we might need to do some further testing with swabs to see exactly what bugs are growing down there and what might be able to to settle it down. But a lot of the time, if your little dog is prone to ear, ear disease, it's more long-term management, um, making sure you keep things at bay and being really vigilant. And that's obviously signs. what she's trying yeah, to do. Exactly. Yeah. No, okay. I think you're doing a great job. Okay. And another Eileen has a minute... An older miniature Jack Russell. He continues to suck a knee joint just on one paw to the point that he's actually developed a lump. Okay. Um, she seems to be itching at it. The vet, her own vet didn't seem to take much notice of it, mm. but um, Eileen's a bit worried about it. Okay, It's an older miniature Jack Russell. I think if, if it is just one specific spot and it's over the knee joint or over any joint for that matter and he's really kind of licking and sucking and biting at it, I think there's two things you'd wonder about. So the first one will be whether there's an itchiness in the skin, whether he might have, let's say, a little flea or a mite. And for one reason or another, he's particularly got interested in itching this particular spot or whether there might be an underlying allergy on the skin. And this is just a particularly easy spot for him to get to um, to lick and suck and itch, itch the itch, as it were. 
The other thing I would wonder if we're an older Jack Russell is if we potentially have some joint pain. So very much like ourselves, if we had a sore knee, we might bend down and rub it and go, oh, my knee is really sore. Their equivalent of doing that is licking or sucking or kind of biting at joints. It's a sign of discomfort. You'll see that in older dogs with their yeah, paws if exactly. there's arthritis, isn't it? Exactly. You'll see yeah. saliva staining. So when saliva yeah. hits, let's say, particularly light coloured dogs, it turns the, the, the colour of the hair like kind of a brownish colour. Now, that doesn't happen in the darker coloured dogs because yeah. they won't change the pigment. There's a number of things that could be going on here, but I think if you're if you're concerned yourself and you feel it's a change for him, then it's important to investigate it. I think I'd pop back to your vet, just outline your concerns, maybe even keep a little diary for a few days of how frequently you see him doing it. And if you can get little video, videos are an absolute godsend to us as vets because a lot of the time when they come into us in the surgery, they're hyped up, all the adrenaline is flowing, they look like the healthiest dog in the world, but at home they might be really under the weather. So if you can take a little video of what's going on and pop that into your vet, that's really helpful as well. Okay, um, Dermot and Whitegate, apologies for the inner gland talk. We've turned him off his lunch. <laughs> um, hi, vet, uh, to, could you ask the vet please, Mike and Bantry, Kerry Blues, Yes. are they a cross dog? You know, I don't see them very much anymore and they are a beautiful breed in their own little way. The one thing I would say is every single dog, if it's given the wrong environment and upbringing, has the potential to be what we'd say, quote unquote, is a cross dog. Most cross dogs are not cross dogs by nature. Most dogs will start out like a baby. You know, they're innocent to the world and they're generally the the product of their environment and their upbringing. So I think any breed whether it be a Kerry Blue or a Labrador and thing always has the potential to be cross but that's generally a reaction to what they're going through. If you bring them up really responsibly, spend a lot of time socialising them, exposing them to different situations in a controlled manner, then I'd say whatever breed you have, you'd be setting yourself up for success with a, a well-mannered But don't dog. you have to be careful with puppy farms? If you get yes. a little pup out and you could do everything mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. But because of that first six weeks. Exactly. So we have this period of time when they're between, let's say, roughly five to 12 weeks, there or thereabouts, where they are absolutely like little sponges. So everything they encounter within that period, they think that's normal. That's fine. I won't be worried about it. Okay. so if they're in a puppy farm situation and see the same four walls and nobody, they'll think that's normal. And then somebody somebody comes along, people come along, children come along, other dogs come along. And that's very strange to them. So they're going to react negatively to that a lot of the time, at least initially. Whereas if you uh, most responsible breeders will you know, sit around with their dogs, expose them to different situations, different noises like the hoover, like the radio playing and um, themselves or the members of the family. So they're much better socialised, particularly if they're brought up in a, a home or a very well run kennel environment. And handled. And handled yeah. very frequently. Yeah. So certainly very early life can have an impact. Um, but I think it's, it's the sum of its parts, really. Where you get the pup from, if it's well socialised, you're setting yourself up for success. But what you do once it hits home with you is really, really important, particularly for those first few months. And that's when, when we often hear and discuss on this uh, feature when bad habits, you've got yeah. to nip them, don't yeah, you, so you, quickly. You do. And I think a lot of it, I think the the connotations a lot of the time with stopping behaviours are quite negative. You know, there's, there's very little place nowadays for, you know, shouting or at the dog or anything like that, any kind of negative behaviours. A lot of it really needs to be thinking about your environment, what might be triggering this behaviour, because dogs and cats are, are really a product of the environment they're in. So something is probably setting them off. Something is probably causing them to be assessed. They might 
might be painful. They might be worried about a noise they haven't been exposed to. And there's definitely ways around that. There's lots of really great, fully qualified behaviorists out there. And I think another word of caution is if you do have a dog that potentially has behavioral problems, there's no shame in admitting that. I think it's really the mark of an extremely responsible dog owner to say, put their hands up and say, I've got a bit of an issue here. Yeah, I need let's, a hand. let's get this sorted. Yeah, OK, yeah. that's where we leave it. Listen, thank you for that. Thank you. Have a lovely week and we'll chat again to you next week. That is uh, Jane Pickett from the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in Newmarket, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group. That's where I leave you for today. My thanks to Bernie Murphy for producing. We're back with you tomorrow morning. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon and we'll talk to you tomorrow at uh, 10. And actually, JP is back with us tomorrow. So thanks to Bernie for all her work on the show this week. Talk to you tomorrow at 10 on to the Nine Patricia Messenger. A very good afternoon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.